Welcome to MCS Pentecast, Pentecostal podcast about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Van Johnson, Dean of Masters Pentecostal Seminary. This is Peter Newman, Assistant Academic Dean of Masters Pentecostal College. This podcast is three of three of a live presentation given by Dr. Van Johnson to a group of pastors at Royal View Pentecostal Church in London, Ontario on February 21, 2013. The topic? Important Biblical Issues in the Church Today. In this Pentecost, Dr. Johnson addresses two topics. First, the current debate between John Piper and N.T. Wright on justification, and second, the advantage for Pentecostal scholars in the new approach to reading the Gospels and Acts. Okay, let's, let's talk about number three and let's give this a, a few moments time and this may come up later again in, um, in our roundtable discussions. In 1977, E.P. Sanders wrote one of the game-changing books in New Testament studies, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And in that book, Sanders suggested that the Christian church, Protestants in particular, had misunderstood first century Judaism. Sanders says that the Judaism of Jesus' day was not a works righteousness religion, was not a legalistic religion, but instead was more similar to Christianity than we have appreciated. This book has so dramatically changed the way people now read Romans and Galatians and Paul that it deserves just a little bit of discussion. And there's a variant off of this that N.T. Wright has jumped on. So let's talk about all this for a moment or two. Sanders says that for the people of Israel, they did not believe that they got themselves into God's favor by keeping the law, they understood that they were responding to God's favor by keeping the law. The term that I've given you in your handout that he has made famous is covenantal nomism. Stays away from legalism, namas, the word for law. Covenantal nomism. In other words, first century Judaism was a keeping of the law under the umbrella of the covenant. Uh, Sanders had this wonderful way of, of saying that you could analyze any religion. He said you can analyze a religion by two factors, how you get in and how you stay in, the getting in and the staying in. And he put Christianity and, and first century Judaism under the rubric. And of course, any Christian would know, and I do this with uh, students in class all the time. I say, okay, let's, okay so for a Jew, how's, what's the getting in? And for a Christian, what's the getting in? And every, every class says, well, it's by grace that we get in, and then... And then the debate on the staying in comes between whether works are mixed in there, whether it's grace all the way through. And standard, the students will say, and for, for the Jews, the getting in is, is works. And of course, that's why Paul's so upset with works. Um, Sanders says, no, that's, that's a misreading of first century Judaism. For the first century Jew, Sanders is saying, it is a matter of responding to God's covenantal grace. They are in because God was the one who guaranteed the promise to Abraham. Jews are elect by God's grace. It's the staying in that falls the law, not the getting in. 
Uh, it's quite a shift. And of course, it doesn't necessarily sit too well with those of us who are part of the larger Protestant Reformation tradition, where we, uh, where we have inherited from the great reformers who are trying to put some distance between them and the Roman Catholic Church, between the works righteousness of the Roman Catholic Church, and thinking that Paul's arguing against the same thing. So Paul is dealing with the legalism of first century Jews, and Martin Luther then is, is fixated on Romans and Galatians because he's dealing with the works righteousness of, of the Roman Catholics. Sanders said, well, we've just misseen it. Which, uh, which, if it is true, is, is somewhat reassuring that perhaps God didn't all of a sudden become kind and generous two-thirds through the way of the grand narrative. Then the first two-thirds, good luck to you, giving you the law, you know, survivor. And all of a sudden now it's grace and truth in the New Testament. And, and I, think, I think Sanders is, is right on this basic point. That a better biblical reading of God's grace is that you find it in the Old Testament and you find it in the New Testament. And you need go no further than Genesis 12 and then 15. That when God cuts this covenant with Abraham, God becomes the sole guarantor. That no matter whether Abraham's descendants are faithful or not, God will be faithful. The grace of God that he will keep his promise nevertheless. Nonetheless, whatever may come. The grace of God, the covenant. This is a very important theological idea. And so, so books on Romans now are being rewritten. Books on Galatians are being rewritten. Uh, Sanders may be going a little too far. I think, I think there's a strain of first century Judaism that fits that precisely. I learned this from my own doctoral supervisor, Richard Longnecker, who read, who read rabbinics at Cambridge. And Longnecker said, you know, when I read some of the, uh, some of the theology of uh, Second Temple Judaism, early Judaism, he said sometimes I read it and it's, these people are, are reacting Nomus. They are reacting to God's grace. Reacting nomus. Said other times I read it, they sound like acting legalists. They sound like they think that if they keep the law, they can gain God's favor. Longnecker said, you know, perhaps in the first century, there's both going on. I, well, because I trust Longnecker, I chose him as my doctoral supervisor. Uh, I gave him the benefit of the doubt, but, I, but more than that, I think he's, I think he's right. Because there are analogies. Haven't we seen the same thing in Pentecost? Whenever you have a code that is central to the expression of your piety, the temptation may be to think that you're actually keeping the code to keep God's favor, rather than keeping the code because you love Jesus. And it's easy to imagine that in first century Judaism, the same thing could happen. That the law is meant there as a son. Of all the people on the face of the earth, the Jews were actually given God's law. Of all the people, they actually knew what God wanted. But that, that token of grace then, because it is a law then, for some might become a way of proving their own piety and instead of responding to God's favor, trying to gain it. So that's an interesting debate going on. Now N.T. Wright has, has stepped in and there's been a response from the 
the new reformers, the new reformation movement. Uh, the only primary voice in this that I'm aware of is, is John Piper's. But Wright said, okay, Sanders has done us a favor, but Sanders didn't go far enough. If Sanders is willing to talk about justification as a way of getting in and establishing that it's, you know, it's grace for both Jews and, and, and Christians, for, for, for Jews that have accepted Jesus and for Jews who haven't yet met Jesus, in either system it's grace. Uh, Wright says, you know, this justification is, is wrong-headed. Justification isn't so much something that happened in the past. Justification is something that is yet to happen. Okay, well, this has just thrown open the, the doors to a whole debate. But here's the idea, that in New Testament eschatology, and Peter said it well, eschatology is fundamental to the New Testament. Eschatology is everywhere. Eschatology underlies how they thought and what they wrote and how they acted. They believed that they were in a, an unusual eschatological period. You, you can't understand the New Testament without seeing eschatology everywhere. Right? So, so when a student says to me, as they often do, oh, you know, Dr. Van, I can't remember the last time I heard my pastor speak about eschatology, the return of Jesus. I don't believe them. I think what they mean is they can't remember a conference, they can't remember a night where the billboard said, but you can't preach the New Testament without eschatology hitting you everywhere. All of this is based on the fact that Jesus is about to come back. Right? So... There's, there's, this, there's this eschatology, this New Testament eschatology, which is God has already started something in Jesus. Something that was only supposed to happen at the end has already started. The sin issue that was supposed to be dealt once and for all at the end, because Jesus came before the end, it's already started. And so there's aspects of, of salvation terminology that are both already and not yet. In fact, if Paul was here and we asked him, okay, Paul, are we saved yet or not? Paul would say, well, you're saved on the day of judgment. Strictly speaking, salvation is you're saved from the wrath of God. When it falls, you are saved. And, and Wright has said, well, look, take a look at the justification terminology. If justification is the terminology of the law court, if this is a statement of acquittal, the court hasn't convened yet. How can we say we're justified now if the court hasn't convened? Wright says, justification is what is declared on that final day. And justification is God's way of saying, it's this group of people who have been faithful to me. It's that group that is justified. It's that group that has carried forward my plan. It's that group that's been involved in helping me bring the great story of my mission in the world to a completion. So this, is, this has created all kinds of interest. Moving justification, in a sense, to the end. Now, that doesn't mean you can't preach that we're already justified, and it doesn't mean you preach that we're already saved. But biblically speaking, it's probably better to say, we know we're justified because we will be justified on that day. And we can say we're saved now because we know on that day we trust Christ. We trust Christ. That we know that on that day when the wrath of God falls, we trust Him enough to know. Because our faith in Him, when the wrath of God falls, it will not fall on us. So this New Testament eschatology, moving it from what's in the past to what's in the future, is, is a pendulum that swings one way and another way, and right now Wright is pushing it this way. Okay, let me take uh, just a moment or two now and think about, uh, in particular, the implications of the changes in biblical studies for Pentecostal studies. 
Uh, I've put three comments on the end of this handout, and now I'll actually look at the handout with you so I can finish up here in the next moment or two. For Pentecostals, biblical studies has become an open field where Pentecostals moved from only speaking to themselves, writing books for themselves, and moved into the larger evangelical uh, Protestant uh, academy because of a challenge by a name some of you might be aware of, James Dunn. James Dunn is an outstanding New Testament scholar, but he certainly got Acts 2 wrong. The book that became the Baptism in the Holy Spirit was the publication of his doctoral dissertation. Okay, so this is the 70s. The charismatic movement is, is starting to swirl in the 60s. And he meant this to be a biblical corrective to help Pentecostals and charismatics realize that they had been misreading Acts, Acts 2. Uh, the disadvantage that Dunn put himself in was that he didn't, he didn't pay attention to Luke much. He, he just jumped into volume 2. Of course, Luke imagined that when he wrote two volumes, you'd hear Luke on one night and you'd hear Acts on the next night, and so it's one, one large story. To, to, you know, to his disadvantage. I mean, what can you expect? He had one arm tied behind his back, so, he's, so he jumps into Acts without catching the larger story. Okay? So, and of course, he'd been reading a lot of Paul. And so when he, when he sees the Spirit coming in Acts 2, he says the baptism in the Spirit is about conversion and initiation. When you hear people say birthday of the church, they often mean what Dunn meant. That this is the moment that in a sense they became Christian. And this is the moment that they became initiated into the body of Christ. So Acts 2 is the birthday of the church. Well, I think Luke, having written two volumes, would be shocked if people started singing happy birthday when they started hearing Acts chapter 2. He's been describing the mission of Jesus ongoing and disciples who have left everything, the mission of the 12, the mission of the 70. <laughs> this is the empowering of the church. And of course, Dunn is, Dunn's got his Pauline... Dunn has his Pauline, uh, we're videotaping this, this is a very effective uh, illustration, right? Uh, Dunn has his Pauline, uh, okay, it looks a lot like the other ones, but uh, he has his Pauline lens on, he's saying, okay, this is, this is conversion, this is, when Paul speaks about spirit, he means conversion, that's what, that's what Luke means too. He was intentionally provoking Pentecostals and saying, look, you, you simply got it wrong. And all of a sudden, from post-1970 on, you have a new emergence of theologians and biblical scholars from the Pentecostal side stepping in and engaging. Uh, perhaps the one that you would know best is the one I list towards the end of this bibliography for section 4, Strandstad's The Charismatic Theology of St. Luke, where he says, look, you have to read Luke first and then read Acts to see the patterns. It's part of a large story. You don't start in the second half of a story. You start at the beginning. That wonderful little book, under 200 pages, is probably the best book we have in Pentecostal distinctives in terms of what the baptism of the Spirit is that I know. It's written clearly. It's written systematically. It's written well. Strandstad, The Charismatic Theology of St. Luke. Uh, the entry just above that one by Marty Middlestadt. Marty has now tried to chronicle for uh, scholars all the different Pentecostal writers who have, been who have been writing about the book of Acts and sometimes even Luke and sometimes even Luke-Acts together within the Pentecostal tradition. That's a newer book. Uh, 
very significant. Look, look at the entry just above it by uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. Roger told me, Roger Stronstad told me that that book now makes his book obsolete. Of course, that's, uh, that's hyperbole. Uh, Roger has done us a great service. But he says what, Tom, what uh, Johnson has done is picked up this theme that what the Spirit is about is allowing us to continue the prophetic, the empowered proclamation ministry of Jesus. So all of a sudden we're in a new day. Second point here under Pentecostal biblical studies. All of a sudden we're in a new day now where because of the narrative approach, Pentecostals are allowed in public to draw theology from narrative stories. When I went to somebody else's seminary, I was told that if I wanted to understand theology, I needed to read Paul. Luke, Acts was out of bounds because it was history. You know, as I look back on my New Testament theology course, we referred very little to Jesus. We referred more to the more systematic theological approach of Paul. Maybe that's why I've always had a certain nervousness when I hear anybody as a systematic theologian. Not nervousness with Paul, but I was being told that the systematic theology is in the letters. And what you have in the Gospels and Acts is simply what happened back then. You can't establish practice based on something that happened. Those are great stories. And so, and so here I am walking into seminary classrooms, being challenged to defend my faith, and they, they put both of my hands behind my back and said, yeah, forget Luke-Acts. Luke's contribution to the church was to remind the church that the Spirit is not just about bringing people into, into the body of Christ, but by proclaiming it to people who are not yet in the body of Christ. And they said, put both hands behind your back, man, and defend it. Find it, find it in Paul. Letters that Paul is writing to churches that are already Christian. Find the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as proclamation in letters that Paul is writing. You know, we got about 13 of them. And, and, and find it in there in his pastoral letters. Find them in there. Put both hands behind your back, and good luck to you, man. And, it took me years to recover from my education, to be honest. And now all of a sudden we're in a new day where, where uh, non-Pentecostals are talking about narrative theology, theology from, from the, the narratives from the Gospels. It's a much better day to live, and we need to take advantage of this. We've always been good storytellers. It's one of our strengths. But we have tended to take individual bits and stories the day is opening for us as Pentecostals to now start telling the broader stories. And that we can do. That we can do really, really well. Okay, great. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecasts, podcasts produced by Master's College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through Master's Pentecostal Seminary in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough, Canada, please visit mcs.edu.